0: Hey, good morning, everyone. Good morning. That's my real voice this morning. <laughs> Yay! So I, um, I got sick over the break, and then I just um, like um, like I would do, just assumed that I would be better by today, and am not. But, um, but here's my pledge to you. I'm going to stay up here. Like you don't have to come near me. Jenny's going to do communion. I'm not going to touch any of your stuff, but we're going to talk about Jesus together. And, um, I'm very glad to be here. I hope you had a good week. You know, it's a, it's a complicated, it's a complicated time of year for a lot of people. And sometimes you find yourself, uh, sitting with people that you don't normally hang around and it can be difficult. And, um, but I hope that no matter where you found yourself this week, I hope all of you found someone to, to do it with, and I hope that you were able to experience some joy in your heart and some thanksgiving for the good things that God has given to us, uh, the good things in our, in our world. Uh, I, I also want to just give thanks publicly, I don't know if they're even in here right now, for Caleb and Hartley who came back this week to lead us in worship again from 10,000 Fathers. It's been such a gift to have these guys here leading us in. I'm so grateful for them. Um, If if you uh, happen to be reading the New York Times op-ed yesterday, you may have uh, stumbled across an article by Tish Harrison Warren who is an Anglican priest and she is also one of our favorite people here at Trinity. She wrote this really wonderful book called Liturgy of the Ordinary, which we normally have in our bookstore. We may be sold out, but if not, we'll well, you should pick it up. It's it's beautiful, and it's a great way of understanding how to keep the liturg- how to how to Im- how to imbue every part of your life with significance, which is cool. How do you make peanut butter and jelly sandwiches something that actually uh, is ministering to your soul? Anyway, so she was uh, in this. Uh, she got to write for the New York Times, which is pretty cool. And uh, and I just want to read a couple of quotes from this article, and maybe you can go find it yourselves um, to read the rest of it. Uh, just because it, it reminds us and puts us in the mindset of like, where are we? What is Advent? What are we doing here? Why is this not just Christmas, but with a different name? Why are we, why are we keeping the season with one another? This is what uh, Tish writes. She goes, to practice Advent is to lean into an almost cosmic ache, our deep, wordless desire for things to be made right, and the incompleteness that we find in the meantime. So we dwell in a world that's still racked with conflict, violence, suffering, darkness. And Advent holds space for our grief. And it reminds us that all of us, in one way or another, are not only wounded by the evil in the world, but we are also wielders of it, contributing our own moments of unkindness or impatience or selfishness and so to rush into christmas without first taking time to collectively acknowledge the sorrow in the world and in our own lives seems like an inebriated and overstuffed practice of denial we need communal rhythms that make deliberate space for both grief and joy and from me she says the old saying rings true hunger is the best condiment Abstaining for a moment from the clamor of compulsive jollification and instead leaning into the reality of human tragedy and of my own need and brokenness allows me to experience the glory of Christmas time to feel not only more emotionally sustainable but also more vivid, vital, and cherished. And so our response to the wrongness of the world and of ourselves can often be an unhealthy escapism. We turn to the holidays as anesthesia from pain as much as anything else. But we need collective space as a society to grieve, to look long and hard at what is cracked and fractured in our world and in our lives. And only then can celebration become deep, rich, and resonant. Not not as a saccharine act of delusion, but as a defiant act of hope. I love that. Uh, We observe Lent um, even though Easter is coming, even though the tomb is empty, we observe Advent, even though Christ has been born, uh, because it gives integrity to the fullness of our lives as human beings and the full stories that we're inhabiting and the world that is going on all around us. So I invite you, as I did last week, uh, to create spaces. This, this, I mean, again, like you come to my house right now, there is a tree up. It's got lights on it and it's got ornaments on it. I'm not saying, like, be a Grinch and go and tear down people's Christmas decorations. Don't do that. Um, But consider what it means for you to actually create space for grief, for hardness, and to not just to use the opportunity for another glass of eggnog to sort of just drown that out. What the church does in this space is so necessary and so good and so counter to what is going on all around us. And hopefully you can find your own ways to do that with your family. We're going to be lighting candles every week. We're going to be telling the story of a of a nation waiting, of a people waiting for God. With my kids, I hope you'll find ways of joining uh, joining us in this. We're going to read a really funny text today. It's a perfect Advent text. It's Matthew 24. As we jump into this new liturgical year, um, we are starting a new gospel. That might mean something to one or two of you, uh, Jenny being the one person. But uh, I, uh, we are going to be in the Gospel of Matthew for the next 12 months together, which is kind of cool. So you can get to know this Gospel. But we're going to start today in a very strange little part, chapter 24, verses 36 and following. Jesus says this But about that day and that hour, no one knows, neither the angels of heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. For as in the days of Noah were, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days, before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and being given in marriage, until the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing until the flood came and swept them all away, and so too will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two will be left in the field, one will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding meal together, one will be taken and one will be left. Keep awake, therefore, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming." But understand this, if the owner of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake. He would have not left his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an unexpected hour. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God. Laura, thank you for this season. Thank you that it calls us to slow down. Thank you that it invites us. Lord, to step outside of our lives in a sense and to look at the larger story we're in and the larger trajectory of our lives. And God, we just thank you. I just thank you for the church. It feels like a gift. Thank you for for these old practices. Lord, would you please help us to be a people who are preparing our hearts for Christ to be born in them. that means, Lord. It might be different from one to the next, but let us be a people who are watchful and who are awake. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So the texts this time of year are very strange. If you're new to the liturgical calendar, if you've never been in an Anglican church, if you didn't come from a Lutheran church or a Methodist or Catholic or Orthodox church, and you're just walking in here from some non-denominational Southern Baptist community experience, you're like, why are they talking about this? Today is when we talk about Bethlehem and sheep and reindeer and all those things that are in the Bible. <laughs> what are we doing talking about doom and war and chaos um, I remember when I first like was kind of waking up to the liturgical calendar and the lectionary text. That's that's the prescribed biblical text that are given to the church to read every week. That's where our sermons come from. It's where all of our readings come from. And so uh, when I first was reading the Advent text years ago, I just remember thinking to myself, man, whoever picks these texts really doesn't get the spirit of this season at all. Um, there is just a, a very um, obvious cognitive dissonance between people who are, have donned their gay apparel, singing la 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 and then those same people running for their lives on Sunday when we gather together. So how do we make sense of these two sort of uh, strange realities that we're living in in this time of the year? And I like it now. I enjoy it. I enjoy the tension. It, it for me, reminds me that Christmas is ultimately a message of disruption, that Christmas is ultimately meant to come to us as something that unsettles and, and upsets the status quo. And that's, that's what the message of Christmas is. And this is because when we talk about Christmas, we are talking about revolution. When we talk about Christmas, we're talking about upheaval. And Advent is the, is the whispers of that coming upheaval. That's what Advent is. Because when God comes to the earth, it upsets things. When God comes to earth, it breaks things up, breaks up hard ground. It carves new paths. It topples power structures. And the coming of God to the earth has always been intended to be a sign and a word of hope and good cheer. Unless you were in power. For those who were in power, for the haves in the world The message of Christmas was always an upsetting and a troubling message. And we see this in the entire Bible, whether you're in the prophets of the Old Testament or in the New. In the Old Testament, the words that come through the prophets about God coming are always given to slaves. They're given to exiles and to refugees. They're given to people that do not have and do not have power or land or names. And it says your God is coming to restore. And then in the New Testament, the story of Christmas is pitted right up against what is happening in Rome with the Caesars, what is happening in Judea with the Herods, It is always meant to upset the power structures of the day and to remind us that God coming to earth is a great upheaval and a great disruption in the way things are. He's coming to set the world to rights. He's coming to change things. He is not just coming to join us in it. It is not merely God's sloppy wet kiss to the world. He is coming in order to fix it. He's coming to do something about it. And so when we get to Advent, we start reading all these texts about what's happening, the changes that are coming, and what's going to be like when God comes. And so if you're new to it, I just want to say, like, welcome to Advent, welcome to Anglicanism, settle in. This is going to be a time where we, we think about these things every single week, about what it would mean to live in a world that understands itself, that where we understand ourselves this way, we understand the world this way, that this is the time we live in. This is the time we've always lived in. A people on the cusp, but people waiting and anticipating the day when God will split the skies and come and make things right. This is the cry of the church. This is why if you read the Psalms, you see again and again in the Psalms, probably the most, com- the most common prayer in the Psalms is, How long? How long, O Lord? It's the cry of God's people. How long, Lord? Will you wait until you come and set the world to rights? Advent is a season, as we've said where we practice our groaning, where we grow in our sense of ache. So I have four things as we walk through this text I'm just going to bring out. I'm going to say them quickly before I lose my voice entirely. Um, The first is this. We see in this text that there is an ultimate and disruptive culmination to history. This passage is full of cryptic language. It could be understood in a a multitude of ways, uh, today's little paragraph is situated in the midst of a much bigger conversation Jesus is having with his followers about the destruction of the temple. So at the beginning of Matthew 24, they're walking through the temple, and they're like, this place is so beautiful. And Jesus is like, it's going to all go down. And they're like, what? When? And he says, let me tell you. And then he spends the next two chapters talking about the end of Jerusalem, which is a real historical event that happened in AD 64 or 66 to 70 when the Roman general Titus came and ransacked and laid siege on the city of Jerusalem for four years. And finally in AD 70, completely toppled the temple and took it down to the ground, down to the last brick. And it's the state that the temple is still in today. It's a long time ago. And so Jesus is having a conversation with his friends, his very close friends, about what is coming. He wants them to be prepared. He wants them to know that something is coming and that they need to be ready for it. But also at the same time, woven in this conversation is all this future forward, more deeply uh, like, end, like looking apocalyptic language. The coming of the son of man and things that are attached to some sort of a culmination of history so it's just too simplistic to say on one hand jesus is using the um as as some would say so if you grew up in a like a a rapture church you know um or you know what a rapture church is you then the, the language around like the destruction of the temple is just a parable for what jesus really wants to talk about which is the end of all things it's like no, that's too simplistic. But it's also, it's also, not, it's also, woo! It's also not necessarily true that what he's doing is he's um, only talking about Jerusalem. He he seems to be doing something more nuanced than that. He seems to be doing something that's actually, in some way, talking about So we have to be kind of sophisticated and also be really open-handed and just embrace a whole bunch of mystery when we read these texts because sometimes he's talking about something that is super imminent and sometimes he's not. But just two verses before this passage that I just read, he says, Truly I tell you, these things will take place before this generation now living uh, passes away you're we like, well, that's, the long, that's a long time ago. And you're like, it is a long time ago. So and again, it's like he's doing two different things here. But he clearly, at the same time, is talking about there is going to be some sort of a culmination, disruption point at the end of all things. And he's looking to that. He wants us to know that. He also wants us to know that when he was talking to his disciples, that in their mind's eye, they were only thinking about one thing, and that was the physical reality that they were standing in that moment, Jerusalem and the temple, in other words, let us not be too quick to uh, to make metaphors of this stuff. Let's not be too quick to, to understand them like symbolically. These are real, physical, historical things Jesus is talking about, both that have happened in the past in the first century, and that will happen again. The point of Jesus' teaching is that there is a day coming that will be disruptive and will topple the power structures as they are, and that will set the world to rights. And he wants us to know, it will be sudden. It will happen when we don't expect it. As N.T. Wright um, says of this text, he says, life will go on as normal right up to the last minute. That's the point of the parallel with the time of Noah. Until the floods come to sweep everything away, ordinary life was carrying on with nothing unusual. But suddenly, it will divide families and work colleagues down the middle. One will be taken and one will be left. That's the language Jesus uses. Two will be grinding meal. You know, two will be in the field and one will be taken and one will be left. And, and the church that I grew up in understood that as a very clear, like, oh, there it is. Jesus is going to carry away the, the, the Christians to the sweet by and by in the sky and let the whole thing burn. Yay. And we'll fly away and we sing about that. Um, that is not what he's talking about here. First of all, if, you're, um, if there's a flood coming, who are the ones that get swept away in the flood? The drowning people. So the whole parallel with Noah is meant to say that there will be some who will be safe, but there will be some who will be taken. Again, it's not necessarily to be understood, uh, you know, like this is exactly what he's talking about. He's just trying to say there's going to be something that divides people. People that were together will no longer be together. It'll be a time of chaos, of loss. If anything, um, what's, what's clear here is that, uh, that those who are left are the ones who are safe. Again, it's a, it's a strange parallel to try to make sense of. Um, you don't have to go and try to tell your, your grandmother that her left-behind books are wrong. I'm just saying, like, that's, that's not what he's talking about here. Um, the second thing we see in this text is that no one is supposed to try to figure out when this will be. Stanley Hauerwas writes... Uh, he's, a, he's a theologian from Duke and just a really hilarious and amazing person. He writes, Jesus plainly tells us that only the Father has such knowledge... But the temptation to be God, particularly by those who count themselves Christians, is hard to resist. Why? This is great. Desperate to have a handle on history. Christians have used the very apocalyptic imagery that Jesus deploys to prevent attempts to understand the end of the age, to do exactly what Jesus says cannot and should not be done. He's he's saying, so Jesus uses all this, this metaphor. He uses all this apocalyptic language, which is ultimately cryptic. It's not discernible. It's not something you're supposed to necessarily understand. He uses this language to say, you can't understand this. And we use it to say, oh, when he talks about that, he must be referring to this current nation state when he talks about that he must be referring to this current event it's like no he he's literally speaking in riddles in front of you and saying you can't understand these things you're not supposed to try to understand them uh it doesn't say it doesn't mean that like if you if you do want to understand them or for, if you're around people um who who, who give a lot of credence to trying to understand and discern the times that you should call them them silly or whatever it's not that it's just to understand jesus wants you and me to know this is really more it's like parenthetically. He just wants you to know it's fruitless, so just give up on it. Don't try. You, know, you, don't, you don't need to know. It's, it's a fruitless thing. No one's supposed to try to figure this out. He says, even the sun doesn't know, which takes us to the third point, which is that readiness, therefore, involves two things, expectancy and sobriety. His entire message is that because you and I cannot know what the future holds, we ought to live in a state of perpetual preparedness to keep the main thing before us and to stay locked in to remain in the larger story this is what I was thinking about this week so I was um, I was on 30 I I was on I was actually in Miramar Beach which is sort of in that just cluster of panhandle beaches you know near 30A so I wrote a lot of this sermon sitting in a very very nice coffee shop in Rosemary Beach which is like it's a very weird place um (laughs) Anyway, it's very bougie. And I was sitting in this coffee shop, and I was thinking, um, like, this is a perfect place to write this sermon. Because this is is what it's like. This is what it's like. Like, you're just surrounded on all sides by things that are comfortable, and that are nice, and that are good, and that carry with them all these promises. And it's so easy to chase these promises. It's so easy to give my life to them. And Jesus' word is stark and harsh, and disruptive, you must live with the main thing before you. You must not settle for the lesser things. I was, uh, while I was sitting in that coffee shop, something came across Twitter. I was having a very hard time writing the sermon. I was distracted by a thousand things. I was not locked in on the main thing as I was writing the sermon. Anyway, I was on Twitter for a second to take a little break, and something came across by a pastor. I don't know him at all, so I'm not going to... Anyway, he said, what if, what if the greatest threat to the American church today is not socialism or liberal judges? But it's something benign, something seemingly benign like kids travel sports soccer leagues. And I thought that was actually, and like, again, the whole point is not like if you're, if you're in one of those things, like, how could you? The, the point is, is that, that what actually happens to our life is we clutter it up with things that are benign, that seem good, and yet what they actually do are, is constantly pull us off the mark. They constantly pull us out of the center lane where we need to be and instead distract us on the shoulders, on all sides, on things that are good. There's no doubt that they're good. They're just not the best. They're just not the ultimate thing. And how easy is it for me to clutter my entire life up with busyness and activity and things that seem so important in the moment, but at the end of a week or at the end of a month or at the end of a year, I really have very little to show for it that's substantive, something that feels like it's part of a eulogy, something that feels like it's something my kids will talk about when it's all over. Because all that I've done is given myself the t- little things, and I haven't actually stayed where I want to be. And this is Jesus' word to you and me, I believe. This is maybe the word of advent to you and me, is don't settle for lesser things. Don't settle for seemingly benign things when there's actually a better thing available. We let the lesser things distract us again and again and run our lives. And he says that when we do that, we will be caught unaware. Again, this is not meant to be some, some, some foreboding of doom. It's just meant to be like, don't miss out on this. When, when the ultimate comes, when the perfect comes, when the real thing is here, what do I want to have to show for it? What do I want my life to have been made of? What do I want my calendar to have been full of? What do I want my checking, checking account expenditure to, to, to give evidence to? What has my life been made of? What have I cared about? What's been the substance of my life? Because this is the thing, he says, they will be caught unaware, eating and drinking and giving in marriage, and they will not know. All of a sudden, here it comes. And the end will be here for all of us at some point. Now, I, I as I was writing this, I started to feel a little bit of guilt. I started to go like, "Am I just trying to get people to come to church more?" And you know, that's a that's a problem for pastors, right? I mean, like, and if there, I swear, if there was like a shred of the, in me of this, like somehow trying to get you to say no to stuff so you came here more, which would prop up my fragile ego, like I would quit the ministry and run uh, into the mountains right now. That, that I honestly believe to my to my core, to my bones, that Jesus offers the most compelling and abundant and joyful and cogent view of the world and of life possible. It is a life that actually makes sense and gives dignity to suffering and injustice, not simply by saying that God himself was an object of injustice and suffering, but it also offers to us a way for us to share these things with one another, to grieve with one another, to fight for justice with one another. It is a robustly materialistic worldview in that it gives dignity and glory to every rock and flower and tree and star and human being and creature, no matter what race they are or what they believe or what deformities or disabilities they may have. It is also a deeply and robustly immaterial worldview that makes sense of the universe that lives inside of each one of us. It places us in the midst of a story that every child who has ever been born in any culture at any time knows is true in their bones. And before Disney repackaged it, they knew it was true. It already was true in us. And it's why we cry at those silly movies because it's deeply woven into the fabric of our life. And at the same time, in the meantime, it places us in the midst of this interim period where we are doing this with one another, where we're growing in holiness, where we are living lives that are compelling enough that maybe people who see them might just themselves want to join. And it imbues every experience, every encounter, every everything with light and hope and meaning and purpose and significance and weight and bearing and eternity and glory. And I forsake that week after week, again and again. I walk away from that, I disregard it, and I put it over there so that I can focus on Cyber Monday deals, so that I can get a little bit more work done, so that I can give my soul to college football. And I'm not saying any of those things are wrong. May you find great deals on Instant Pots tomorrow, and may Georgia surprise us next week against LSU. I'm not saying that those things are wrong. I'm just saying they're not ultimate. And that whatever I hold to be ultimate, whatever story I most truly believe in, that is the thing that will shape my experience of all other things. And Jesus says, you must be aware. You must be sober. You must... Don't miss this. Don't settle for the lesser good and forsake the better or the best. Which leads us to the fourth point. That to do this, we must be ark builders with one another. This comes from an image that Stanley Hauerwas gives in his commentary on this text, but I love it so much. He says, "People, disciples like Noah are to build an ark even if it is not raining. The name given to that ark is the church. And I, that is the people of God on the earth. The builders of the church will be surrounded by many who go about their lives eating and drinking and marrying, living as though nothing has changed, even though an ark is being built. He goes on to say, and I I think this is worth saying, he says, But the floods will come, drowning all. And the only difference is that when the Son of Man comes, not all will be swept away, because his coming is quite a different flood. It is the flood of his blood that is meant to save the lost but some will be judged by this just judge. Jesus is not threatening. He's just stating the fact. You and I need to do this with one another. We need to be ark builders with one another. That is, we need to live in community with one another so that we can remind ourselves of what is most true. And the reason why I think I throw myself off the mark so much is because of how much of my life I'm actually doing by myself, how much of it I'm actually trying to figure out on my own. And if I don't have people who are regularly speaking into my life in deeply relational, safe ways. There will be people who will speak into my life. I do not have to go searching high and low to find people to speak into my life. They are everywhere. They are in your podcast feed. They are in your news feed. They are in your inbox. They are on your Instagram feed. There are people speaking into my life constantly, telling me what story to live in and what matters most and who I should care about and what I should disregard and who I should cancel and who I should not cancel or uncancel. I will be told that again and again and again, I need to have people who are on the same mission as me, who are in the same boat as me, who are on the same storyline as me, who can remind me week after week, day after day, Matthew, you know what story you're in. You know what ultimately matters. You can't do this. We cannot do this with one another, without one another. As we move into the new year, we're going to be looking really deeply at this as a church about what it means for us to do this with one another, what it means for us to truly become people who live in community with one another, who don't just simply gather on Sundays or maybe for an occasional prayer service or for a pancake breakfast, but actually are sharing life with one another in ways that are helping us stay on the mark. Again, not as a church against culture, church over culture, church somehow like, you know, we, 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 like we're a special like little club and we go over here, but actually as a people who live in the midst of culture, who live in the midst of Atlanta, but whose lives are compelling enough because of the light that is in them in the midst of darkness and suffering and injustice, but whose lives are compelling enough that people who happen to rub up, rub up against us might just be compelled to also forsake the lesser, for the better who might also be compelled to come and build with us. Which is what our call is. To be a space, a saving space for all of Decatur, for all of Atlanta, for all of the world. But we need to do it with one another. We are the ones who will help each other stay alert. You are the ones who will help me stay alert. And I will help you. And we will do this with one another. Why don't we stand up together? Thank you so much for listening to today's sermon. I'm Matthew Brown, the parish pastor here at Trinity in Decatur. At Trinity, our mission is to be a people who are growing into Christ-likeness. You can learn more about Trinity and get plugged into the life of the church by visiting our website, atltrinity.org. Thank you so much, and God bless you. Have a great week.